found a monster. At least we thought we had. What do you know for sure then? It was a strange moment where we all kind of looked at each other without speaking about it. It seemed pretty clear that we'd found what we'd all been looking for. Shared confirmation that the world was far richer and more diverse than we could have imagined. To date, we each had our own reason to believe, but if we found what had taken Jennifer, we would have corroborated evidence and we'd be hip deep in something so big and so intense that every other trouble we had had would just melt away into insignificance. We didn't speak any more of it until that evening after work. I think we all needed time to absorb and process what we had committed to. I went home that night and went straight to my books. I'm about to go meet the guys and share what I've learned. I don't know what we're going to do. Are we really going to go down an old graveyard and hunt a monster? Crap. This is some serious... Oh, well, crap. But what can we do? This might be what I've been looking for. My direction. My cause. I'd be really doing something. Not just being passive and letting life push me around. It would be me taking charge of things. Me. Ah, I'll record what I found here before I go see everyone. That way, I'll have something I can come back to, or there'll be some evidence if uh, if everything goes to hell. So, first of all, I look through the unreadable script book. I call that one the script book for short. I didn't initially find anything in there, not surprising, but after reading an entry in the collected journals and writings of the hunters, I remembered something in the script book and went back to it. My best guess and it is a guess, is the monster we are looking for is a ghoul, or some variant of that. Something I've noticed in these books is they rarely exactly agree on details. I found an entry in the Hunter's book about vampires, and while it largely agreed with the details in David Geldstein's work, the Hunter described an altogether more alien and monstrous vampire. Certainly not one that would hold a conversation with you or feel sorry for itself. Even in the hunter's accounts of the Rougarou, he mentions the difference between the werewolves of the Old World versus the Americas. So, I've read a description of a ghoul, and it seems to fit what little evidence we have, with a few minor details missing. It's possible that every monster is unique, with only a loose set of classes each belong to, rather than breeds or species of monsters. So every ghoul may be somewhat unique, and every vampire different. Look, I'll read you the entry on the ghoul, that seems to fit. <clears throat> Kufra, Ottoman Empire, 1713. Apparently this is in what we now call Libya. It's near Egypt. July 12. The Janissary officer led me to my quarters for the evening. There are still 20 days before I leave this heat-blasted land and return to the green hills of home in Wales. The monotony of each day grinds on me. I wake, eat some of the local millet porridge, I think it is millet anyway, then march on to the next village. So far, I haven't found the source of the diamonds, supposedly on the edge of the Sudan. The natives are welcoming enough, 
and far preferred to the occasional Italian I come across with their penchant for garlic. I have made friends with a nice chap travelling with his family. His name is Cal, or at least that's what I call him. His actual name is longer and hard for me to say, so Cal it is. He is travelling with his daughter, Merit, and wife, Huai, to Tripoli, for a better life, I suppose. I haven't really pried too much. July 13. Last night, I was kept awake by an incessant scratching seeming to come from the walls or under the floor. I'd put it down to rats, but these would be the biggest rats I had ever heard of. I'm pretty sure there was a big dog sniffing around outside too. Or maybe that was under my floor. Nothing would surprise me in this sunblasted land of bizarre animals and odd peoples. Off to porridge and coffee I go. Merritt has gone missing in the night. Cal is absolutely inconsolable. He hasn't stopped saying it was a ghoul who took her. I've no idea what a ghoul is, or why, or how it would take a child. Evidently, we have one week and one day to find Merritt before the ghoul consumes her and takes her form. I can't say I really believe this superstitious nonsense, but I'm going to help search for her. We are meeting in the graveyard on the edge of the village. July 14. We spent the rest of yesterday and much of the night searching for merit. Cal had us inspect each of the graves, or burial mounds as it was, for fresh activity. The story I got from him was that a ghoul will make a nest below a graveyard feasting on the flesh of the dead. On the full moon, or after his food has run out, the ghoul will lure a child, especially a girl, to him while in the form of a hyena. He would then poison her with his envenomed claws to place her in a state of rigid torpor, not unlike death. After one week and one day, the ghoul consumes the child and takes their form. Every day in that form, they appear to age a year, which means they have but a short while to move on to another hunting ground before their disguise is ruined. Cal doesn't say why a girl child is selected, nor what a ghoul looks like in its true form, and why it can't travel without disguise. I'll be joining the Janissaries, walking ever-increasing radius circles around the village tomorrow. As much as I'd like to support my friend Cal, I think it more likely will find a trail or trace by being methodical and logical about this. It'll be a hard day today, as I again was continually awakened by the infernal scratching and scrabbling. July 16. We found merit. But I'm not sure I should say any more. My mind feels on the verge of cracking. I will do my best to record just the facts of what happened yesterday. I spent the day of the 14th fruitlessly circling the village looking for track or trace of Merrill and her abductor. I sank with gratitude into my pallet, only to be awakened some time later by the scratching. Having had enough of the broken sleep and feeling heartbroken in my efforts to help Cal and the grief-stricken Hwai, I lost my temper. Immediately I fetched the large wood axe from beside the door and began hacking into my floor with a half-crazed intent to make most horrendous murder on the vermin scratching so incessantly therein. The floorboards splintered, and when I pulled them aside, I had to stop. The blood had drained from me and I shivered. The officer, who had shown me to my accommodation some two days prior, burst into my room to see what the noise was about. I pointed, and we both stood staring at the tunnel running under my room. 
Gnawed bones and tattered cloth littered the floor of the tunnel. The janissary started calling to his men, but I wouldn't wait. I grabbed his bayonet-adorned long gun and the small lamp by my bed and jumped into the tunnel before the startled soldier could stop me. My hands and knees got scraped up most awfully because I had to crawl along the tunnel, holding the gun with bayonet point ahead of me and pushing the lamp along the floor. I didn't know it then, but I have since discovered the officer's barracks where I was billeted was built onto what used to be the main temple and burial ground. The tunnel I followed branched out to what I considered to be lesser tunnels, which each ended in a dead end with gnawed on bones and torn rags. Something, I'll call it the ghoul, had been tunnelling, digging up the bodies and gnawing on what was left of them. They were old, so there wouldn't have been much more than bits of dried and tattered flesh. I have no clue as to where the excavated dirt was stashed. The ground here was hard clay and limestone gravel, and would have taken a lot of effort to dig out. I can only guess the ghoul dug through the hard-packed dirt with his claw and dragged the rubble off to some distant scree pile away from the village. When I caught up with the creature, I easily discovered how it had dug so much, so quickly. The tunnel I crawled along eventually opened out into a small cave with a hole in the ceiling showing the midnight sky above. The janissary had started down after me and shortly exited. Looking at the ceiling, though I couldn't see it in the dark, I knew there would be a bucket and windlass over that hole, for this surely had to be the well in the centre of the village. There was a pool of mirror-smooth water in the middle of the cave, and other small tunnels leading off and up. Laying stiff as a board, arms in close and legs together like a soldier at attention, was Merritt. She looked as still as the dead, but I rushed up to her and put the lamp next to her and listened to her chest anyway. There was a slow but steady beat. If I had to estimate, I'd say her heart was beating just once every four seconds. Her flesh was cool to the touch and absolutely rigid, like she was a statue. Like beneath her skin was plaster and sand, rather than tissue and blood. I turned to watch the Ottoman soldier enter the cave and draw his sword looking around. I can't fully recall what happened at that point. I remember wondering where the ghoul had gotten to, and was just turning, picking up my gun when something launched itself at me. It was so fast, I simply had no time to register what it was, but it mustn't have seen my weapon, as I was turning because it impaled itself with its lunge. The next thing I knew, I was laying on my back next to the pool, holding the butt of the gun while this creature screamed and writhed above me. Claws grabbed at the hard wood of the shaft, and needle-sharp teeth flashed in fury. The officer swung his sword and just about decapitated the ghoul with a single swing. A second sharp chop took the head off, and the body went limp. I include here my observation of the creature. I doubt anyone who wasn't there will believe it. The ghoul began decaying the moment the head came free. Within the quarter of an hour, the body had reduced to little more than bones and black powdery mould. By the end of the hour after it had died, there was nothing but ash. Its legs were covered in short, spotted hair, almost like fur. They ended in paws, not unlike a dog or hyena. Its body was smooth, leathery skin, with spots and stripes following the contours of hard, sinewy muscle. The face was reminiscent of a dog's also, with the stubby, hairless snout and multiple rows of needle-like teeth in front and sharp, chiseled-shaped teeth towards the back. Its eyes were vertical slits, 
like a cat's eye with an exaggerated pupil, dilated to allow as much light in as possible. The hands, on the end of its skinny, ropey arms, were tipped by hooked claws that glistened black in the lamplight. This would be the venom it used to paralyze its prey, and the powerful tools it used to dig out the tunnels. We brought Merit out to the well, and took her to the mosque. The priest, a wise man with solemn and unsurprised eyes, lay her out and began immediately preparing a potion of some kind. It will evidently release Merit from the rigid torpor she was in, Without application of the antidote, she would apparently die in just a few more days. I left to meet the others after recording that. Oh, dumb. I should have explained about the antidote recipe I'd found, but I was packing darkies and just ran out. The script book had a recipe for a potion that would cure ghoul paralysis. A fairly simple recipe, really. It was a little tricky to find frankincense, but as it turns out, the local health food store had frankincense tears and oil. The oregano, sage and copper were easy, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I've got another journal to play. I recorded it while hunting in the cemetery and during the aftermath. We've met at the cemetery just after dark. Ah, oh, we waited at Macca's, eating fries and watched the sun disappear. I'm pretty sure we'd all have preferred to do this in midday, but we didn't want to have to explain what we were doing. John brought his taser. Apparently his gun isn't a toy, and he has to account for every bullet. This would have been easier in the US. We'd have all been able to get packing machine guns and grenade launchers, assuming we could get them off the hands of the school kids that shoot each other with them. Yeah, yeah, hang on, I'm just recording this. I'll edit out any illegal stuff. We aren't really doing anything too illegal anyway. I guess digging up a grave is sort of vandalism. But if we're right, the ghoul will have already done that. Besides, if we can find Jennifer and give her the antidote, we'll be heroes. Not that we'll be able to tell anyone about this. Jennifer was taken exactly a week ago. According to that book, we should have 24 hours to find the ghoul and Jennifer before... Uh, whatever. Okay, okay, I'm here. Cool it. Tony and John have shovels. Venus is shining her torch on the grave while they dig it, and, and well, I'm talking to my phone, but I'm also keeping a lookout. I can't believe we're doing this. I mean, really doing this. It's real. This is a real monster, an actual, honest-to-God monster. Not some person with anger management issues uh, or having a bad trip. This, this ghoul, uh, the motives of this ghoul, they're, they're pure. They're untainted by moral ambiguity. In the movies they show the good guys shooting up the terrorists, but really those terrorists, they think they're doing the right thing. They must think that or they wouldn't do it, right? I know there are people out there who do things specifically because it's the wrong thing to do, but we classify them as nutbags. That's a technical term, you understand. In any case, a ghoul isn't suffering from delusional psychosis. It hunts, it kills, and it eats people. Oh, gross. What the hell did I just step in? Ah! What's up? I'm, I'm okay. I think I just found the ghoul's, um, skin. Oh, I've seen enough, yep. Uh, the, the other guys are acting much, much the way I did. Big bad John is laughing at the ground and it looks like Tony is working hard not to lose his fries too. Like Venus is inspecting the loose pile of skin and hair looking like she's 
doing an audit. So the ghoul eats someone, somehow takes their form, but each day they age a year. I, I guess at the end, when the form is too old, the ghoul sloughs off the old skin and digs a new burrow in a new cemetery. Oh, look, they're, they're back to digging again, a bit more enthusiastically now. I'll just, I'll just put my phone in my top pocket. Oh, what are you looking at now? Ah, oh, it's a tunnel right there. A ghoul tunnel. I don't think we need to crawl along it. No? No, this crawl tunnel will connect this grave to others, lead back to the central nest, which is where Jennifer will be. Are you sure? Look, I'm claiming expertise on ghoul behaviour, and I say they have a central nest where they keep their next victim and from where they branch tunnels out to the graves in the cemetery. I'll accept that. I wouldn't fit in there anyway. Tony isn't going in there without me. I don't think anyone wants to crawl through a dark tunnel. Maybe if I had a flamethrower or at least a spear. Guys, I think we'll need to think about gathering weapons if we're going to do this much more. We're going deeper into the parkland. If I had to guess, I'd say towards the centre. You're still recording? Natch, this might be the last thing anyone finds of me. At least I'll know what we're doing. Charming. Oh, there's a big concrete, um, thing sticking out of the ground. It looks like the manhole cover for a huge soak well or storm water drain, uh, thing. I'm hardly a civil engineer or hydrologist or whatever, so I have no idea what the real name for this thing is. But it's about 60 centimetres above the ground with, it's got grill all around uh, the base and a, a concrete lid or, a, or maybe you'd call it a manhole cover on top. The whole structure must be about three metres in diameter. John! Get off! I feel like death warmed up. I got clawed by the ghoul. Yes, it was a ghoul. Crap, it was a ghoul. It looked part man, part dog. Jumped me from the bushes and managed to get a swipe down my arm. I locked up almost immediately. It felt like, felt like my muscles had turned to stone. I couldn't move an inch. I could barely roll my eyes around. Thank God John can handle himself. I think I better sign up some training if this is what I'm getting myself into. Look, John's taser absolutely kicked the ghoul's ass. Knocked him flat. John got it right in the thing's neck, just below the ear. I couldn't see what happened next because I was all like a statue lying on the ground. But they all piled on, hitting with their shovels. This thing was monstrous. There's a phenomenon known as the uncanny valley where something looks so close to human but isn't quite right. It mostly applies to robots, but I think there's something similar here. This thing looked so unnatural. Like its body followed a different set of biological laws from any other creature I've seen. It's almost like a real thing, but not quite. It was just off enough that it just revolted all of us. I guess that's why they have to wear disguises. They stopped hitting it when its body started crumbling and falling apart. It wasn't anything more than black, mouldy-looking dust when I was revived. We'd made a lot of the antidote for this reason. We pulled the rigid as a board Jennifer from the soak well. The ghoul had dug a ledge into the side of the pit, 
and stashed her body there. The antidote worked, and a groggy and unwell Jennifer took a deep breath and vomited. I know what it feels like to wake up from ghoul paralysis, and she'd been that way for a week. We walked her back to her house and sat in Tony's car with the lights off, quietly watching as the front door opened and Jennifer's parents, Phil and Tanya, stood gobsmacked, staring at their daughter in the downlight of their portico. We let our breaths out as one. The feeling was indescribable. Seeing tears glisten in their eyes and the obvious joy of Jennifer as she leapt into their arms was like a swift kick right in the feels. I think we all cried a little, though maybe only Tony would admit it. Even now, past the hangover-like feeling, I feel lighter, stronger. The real world being full of monsters and dark magics really only means there's greater opportunity for light to shine that much brighter. I'm not sure I can sleep now. I'll probably have to take tomorrow off, call in sick. But oh man, this is why I was born. All I want to do is feel this again. I want, no, I need to see people as happy as those parents. I need to know I've made a lasting and indelible difference in the world. Computer programming is nothing to this, to, to supporting humanity and being a part of what makes things good and stops things that make things bad. Ah, oh, I... Ah, oh, okay, now I do. I, I feel like crap. I felt good about saving Jennifer, but also physically very bad. I thought I'd figured out some secret formula. I was very wrong, and I'm ashamed of what happened next. Guilt has come and gone. I don't think retaining the feeling of guilt is useful once you've decided a course of action based on it. I'm committed to my course, and one way or another, I'll repay my mistakes. Oh God. <laughs> God. How's our work exactly? Abrahamic religions tell us there is but one God. But well, they're relatively recent inventions and the more ancient religions don't have such restrictions. Maybe they're all real in some form or another. Gods. Well, I'm pretty sure there's at least some truth to the Hindu pantheon. I'd be hard-pressed to discount them, all things considered. <sighs> okay, enough of that. Bye. I'll organise the next line of info dump. This is my exit plan. Thank you for listening. The next episode will come out at the same time next week. In that episode the narrator goes too far and cracks start appearing. A special thank you for Tanya Regan as Venus and Mark Regan as John. If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends about it. For more information visit gravityundone.net.